Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Open up to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It's the second book in the Bible, and it goes Genesis, Exodus, and so it's at the front. And uh, the, the, there's big numbers in each of the books, and the big numbers represent the chapter numbers, and chapter 19 is a big number 19. So when you get to chapter 19, that's where we're going to be working from today. Um, we're currently in a sermon series right now what, that we've entitled, When God Shows Up. When, when God Shows Up. And I just want to actually say something about last week. Um, last week, we actually had a sermon uh, about how when God shows up, he, uh, he renews or he heals. And so we had uh, six people up here actually during the last worship set. We prolonged the last worship set who were praying for people who needed healing. Okay, and so lots of people came up for healing, and I was one of the six that were up here praying for people, and three people came up to me, and they said, hold on, Ryan, you got in a mountain bike accident uh, <laughs> a month ago, you have a broken collarbone, and, and a lot of ribs broken, we need to pray for your healing, you know, so I got he- prayed for healing too, and I kid you not, Monday morning I woke up, and it was like a new day. It was, it was incredible. I, I felt a whole lot better physically. Um, I felt better emotionally. I know that some of the people who, who so two of the people who prayed for me just prayed that uh, for my like, whole being, not just physical, but like emotional and spiritual well-being too. I woke up just feeling like a new person on Monday morning, okay? And so much so I even forgot to take like my pain meds. It was pretty cool, you know? Um, and so praise God. Praise God. That God is a God who shows up. And I just wanted to bring that up right now to let you know that um, that's not a one-week or a one-time deal. We have people here to pray with you guys every week, okay? So Lena and Mookie, they're up here right now, but they'll be um, in, in the back over here and in the back over here to pray with anybody who would like prayers for, it could be healing, it could be oh, just anything that you need from God. They're here to pray with you. And so we do that every week. We always have two people that are there to pray for anybody that would like it. They, they, they're wearing a prayer, they'll be wearing a prayer lanyard. So it's a big lanyard that says pray. That's how you know that's the person. So, okay, so that, that was last week. Um, and so we're currently in a, a teaching series that we've entitled, When God Shows Up. That's all about asking the question, what happens when God shows up? And, and, and why are we doing this sermon series? Why are we unpacking this? Well, um, to answer that question, we have to understand about a little bit about how our city understands spirituality. How our city understands spirituality. We are part of um, a population in the United States that has consistently been among the top cities that say religious is not important whatsoever. Okay? And we're consistently among the lowest of cities in the United States in terms of Sunday morning worship attendance. Okay, so it's like us, San Francisco, and New York City. We're all just like the anti-religious bastions of the United States, okay? But here's what's interesting. Seattle is very different from San Francisco and very different from New York in a big way. And that, is, that has to do with how we are, and our city has historically embraced spirituality. Okay, we're, we're a city that while we may be anti-religious, we're very open to notions of spirituality, and, and we always have been. And, and part of that is really uh, has to do with the history of our city. For, uh, for a couple decades, we were um, the hub, the central um, North American hub for uh, what came to be known as New Age spirituality. That, it, its home was here in Seattle, okay? And to this day, there is, a, there is a, an acceptance, um, an openness to spirituality, so it's not uncommon to bump into somebody in Seattle and get into a conversation about spirituality generally. It's actually very easy. People in Seattle have a lot of spiritual experiences. Now, now part of that's really good. Part of that is, is really cool. Acknowledging that there's a spiritual world that we interact with is something that many in Western society have, they, they just dismiss as bogus altogether, right? But not Seattle for the most part. And, and so we can actually affirm something true about this, uh, about this notion of spirituality. Because Christianity has always held that humans not only have the ability to interact with the spiritual world, but that we are actors within the spiritual world, whether we recognize it or not. And so that's something that's really cool about uh, the, the, the New Age spirituality of Seattle, is Christianity can come alongside someone, your friend, say, who's, who's explaining a spiritual experience to you, um, you could come alongside them and say, yeah, I'm sure you did have a spiritual experience. 
Perhaps you did have a spiritual experience. Okay, so we don't have to uh, be judgmental of those who say, you know, I had a spiritual experience. And we, as Christians, we have to say, no, I'm a Christian. That stuff doesn't happen. Well, that's not true. Christianity is very interested in how we interact with the spiritual world. Okay? Now, there is a place where it breaks down. Okay? The New Age notions of spirituality, while, while they hold on to human subjective experience of the, of the spiritual, which we say uh, can, does happen, they also say that, that the experience with that spiritual realm is uh, subjective and the spiritual realm itself is subjective. Meaning, it's open to interpretation. What's true about the spiritual world is open to the interpretation of the person that had the experience. And that's where Christianity would differ. This is where the notion of there's different truths for different people comes from. It was birthed in the New Age movement. Your experience of the spiritual world could lead to very different conclusions about what's in the spiritual world than me. But Christianity says the spiritual world itself is objective. There's something that's true about the spiritual world. There's certain actors within the spiritual world. Just like there's certain actors in our physical world, Christianity posits there's certain actors in this spiritual world. And, and then it also says there are certain ways that the spiritual world operates, or spiritual laws, you could even say. Much like there are, we've deduced that there's physical laws that, that, that explain much of, our, uh, of our, the events that we see nowadays. We say there's physical laws behind those. Christianity says there's spiritual laws that govern the spiritual world. So, so Christianity says there's something objectively true about the spiritual world, okay? Which means that there's something normative in our subjective experience of it, okay? So don't misunderstand. In, in kind of challenging this notion of spirituality in our city, we're not saying that, that people aren't having spiritual experiences. We're just saying there are some objective realities about the spiritual world that can explain them better. And that's why we're doing this series. That's why we're doing this series. Um, when God shows up. This is a, a co-mingling of the spiritual and the physical world. God showing up. And we're asking, what does that look like? So that we can know, this is what it's going to look like when God shows up again. This is what it looks like now, when God shows up right now. Because when God shows up, the experience goes far deeper than goosebumps. Or just or feelings of positivity. There's something concrete that happens. There's an objective person that's showing up in a specific way that's showing up. And the way that, that we're looking at what happens when God shows up that we've been doing in this sermon series is we're looking at one passage from the Old Testament and one passage from the New Testament, well, from, from the gospel accounts. We're saying this is how God showed up to Israel. We're looking at that. And then we're looking at how Jesus showed up again to Israel, the Israelites, 2,000 years ago. And, and we're doing that because uh, Jesus claimed to be God when he showed up on the scene. And so we're kind of challenging this notion of Jesus. If Jesus showed up and claimed to be God, then he would do the same things that God did in the Old Testament, as recorded in the Old Testament, okay? And so then, then we're even taking it um, a, a step further, and we're saying, how does God show up today through the person of the Holy Spirit? So we kind of have this Trinitarian, I guess, strategy that we're saying, hey, this is how God showed up in the Old Testament. Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago. And then today, God shows up like this. This is what it looks like. This is what it leads to, okay? And so um, that, that's what we're up to, okay? But why? Why is this so important? Well, really, a lot of our mission to the city really revolves around these fundamental questions. Um, did you know God could show up in your life? That's a big question that many in our city don't know. How has God already shown up in your life? Sometimes God shows up in people's lives and they're unaware of it. And it's fun to see people who come to faith start to have their eyes open and be, to, to see these are all the ways that God had already Showing up in my life. It's, it's really fun and powerful. Are you looking for God to show up in your life? God is a God who shows up. That's one thing that we, we wouldn't have the word of God if he wasn't a God that shows up. And so are you looking for him to show up in your life? How are you asking for him to show up? 
And then if he does show up in your life, how will you know? How will you know? Isn't that what we're really interested in? Saying that was God? How will you know? So, so these are all the questions that we're answering in this series. Some weeks we answer some a little bit more than the others. And they're really pivotal questions because when people start to ask these questions for the first time, it's really cool um, because what we see is that their whole life begins to pivot towards one of increased abundance, fruitfulness. Um, it's really fun to see uh, people who are process- processing Christianity for the first time start to consider these questions for the first time. You see him move from insecurity to confidence, from feeling completely abandoned by God, maybe that's you today, to feeling loved by God. That's a big switch from, from being just dissatisfied in life to being extremely grateful in life, from moving from unbelief to belief. That's what answering these questions and asking them honestly begins to work in people's lives. It's really fun to watch, and that's how we're doing this series, so that as many people can begin to see how God's showing up in their lives, okay? So that's enough for this introduction, okay? And um, today we're in for a treat. Uh, We are going to look at the most public way that God showed up before Jesus. We're gonna look at that most public way that God showed up before Jesus. To the Jews, it was always the most treasured event. You hear that ringing, Kurt? Thanks, bud. And, and when we truly understand this event, we actually can begin to treasure it and celebrate it too, okay? All right, so, so the, um, we're in Exodus 19. Let's look at it. Uh, verses 1 and 2, they set the scene for us. So let's read them. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. All right, so this kind of sets the scene for what we're going to see as God's biggest showing up in Israel's history, okay? Um, the time frame is two to three months after they came out of Egypt, okay? They came out of slavery in Egypt, the first 18 chapters, excuse me, of, of Genesis, or of Exodus, recount those events, the 10 plagues, the crossing of the the Red Sea. They come out of Exodus with 600,000 men and their families. So well over a million people come out of Egypt. God God provides bread for them falling from the sky that they call manna. Uh, Whenever they're in a pinch for water, God just makes it spring out of rocks through Moses. This This has been going on for two or three months. They've been on a long walk until they reach this mountain. What is this mountain then, this this Mount Sinai that's come to be called? Well, actually, this is where Moses actually had the encounter with uh, the burning bush. This is where Moses encountered the the burning bush. And so when you read that account, the whole plan, God says, when you take, when you get the Israelites out of Egypt, come back here and meet with me on this mountain. So stage one, done, okay? Finally got out of Egypt, long, there's 18 chapters recounting it, finally get to this mountain, they're here. They're here, they're finally at this mountain, at Mount Sinai. And uh, later in the book of Numbers, Moses will record for us that they spend 10 months here, 10 months and 19 days. So they're, gonna ha- they're having an extended camping trip, okay? Outdoors, camping trip, all food provided, all water provided by God. It's a pretty great camping trip. It's like showing up to uh, Smith Summer Family Camp. Yeah, you know, like all your food's taken care of. You just gotta relax, okay? They're there for 10 months, Okay, and so let's look at how, what happens on this 10-month camping trip, okay? Verse 3, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, okay, so like any good camping trip, there's a hike. Moses hikes up this mountain, okay? He left the masses behind him. He hikes up the mountain. Maybe he went to the same bush where he encountered God before. I don't know, um, but God showed up, and this is what God says. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on angels' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people Israel. Okay, 
So uh, that word saying there, that, that's right there in the middle of verse 3, saying, um, this is meant to pop out at you in the Hebrew. In, in, in the Hebrew, the Torah is meant to be read aloud. And the two phrases right before this word saying, um, they're actually each 10 syllables long. The two phrases right after the word saying are both seven syllables long. And you have this two syllable just saying right in the middle of it. It was meant to just pop out as it was read aloud. It's a very important word. So underline it or circle. I have it circled in my Bible. We're, we're going to see it again come up. It's a very important word. But, but what's going on here? Well, this is an invitation to a covenant. God's inviting the people of Israel to a covenant. Well, what's a covenant? Well, the basic gist of, of a covenant is a list of promises that, uh, that two agreeing parties make to one another to be faithful to one another in certain ways. Uh, for example, marriage is a, a ceremony of a covenant. Marriage is a ceremony of a covenant. There's promises of, uh, that each party makes to uh, the other within marriage. Um, they also have signs, rings. Uh, these are signs of the covenant saying that I'm always going to um, hold up my side of the covenant. So they show up and God wants to enter into a certain form of covenant with them. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we must make one thing really, really clear. God has already saved the Israelites. He's brought them out of Egypt. In fact, it says here, brought you to myself. Okay, God has already saved them. He already has them. They are already in a deep and vibrant relationship with God. Those things have already taken place before this law is, is going to be given to them, okay? So let's continue. Verse 7, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. He told them, hey, God wants to enter into a covenant with you. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now that's interesting. So Mo Moses uh, hikes back down the mountain. He shares with them what God, that God's inviting them, inviting them to a covenant. He hikes back up the mountain. Or no, no, sorry. He receives their reply. And they accept the terms of the covenant sight unseen. All that the Lord says, we will do. This is incredible. Often we look at the Israelites and we, we, we harp on them for being bad examples of faith. Look at this. Whatever God says, we're up for it. Where does this faith come from? Where does this faith come from? They've experienced the salvation of God. God's powerfully brought them out of Egypt. God has sent bread to fall on their heads. How amazing, and they've had a, such an experience of God's goodness that they know that whatever this God says to do, we're on board with it. How incredible is that? This is cautionary for some of us. If we say that God has saved us from, from sin and death, but we're suspicious of his word, if we're suspicious of what he might tell us, what he might ask us to do, we may not have fully encountered this God. We may not have fully seen his goodness. Perhaps you grew up with an intellectual notion of this God, but you failed to see how he's shown up in your life and in complete goodness. Because when God's people experience his salvation, when they taste his goodness, they trust his word. They trust it. They say, we were slaves we had no clothes, we had no food, we had no water, but this God showed up and, and freed us. He clothed us, he fed us, he gave us water to drink. He has given us only good. We will do whatever he says. This is what takes place in the heart of anybody who has encountered God. If you're not there yet, that's okay. That's why we're here as a church, to help people consider this God, to, to see his goodness perhaps even experience his goodness by him showing up in their lives, okay? All right, so Moses goes back up the mountain to bring God the people's response. Okay, let's look at that. Verse eight, where'd we leave off? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. 
when Moses told the words to the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to, to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or, or shot. I don't think they had guns back then. This is kind of, this is, this is kind of a different reference there. Similar to stoning. Uh, I think it's a reference to slingshot, okay? Whether beast or man, intense, I know. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman, meaning not to have sexual relations. So Moses goes up for the second time and comes back down the second time. He's a true mountaineer at this point. He's just going up and down this mountain. He lets the people know how God is going to show up in three days' time, what they need to do to prepare for it. Now, just jump into the events of that third day. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That's for the third time. Wow, what a crazy event, right? Thunder, lightning, thick cloud, smoke, the Lord descending in fire, a trumpet, apparently. What an incredibly insane event that these million plus people must have witnessed at the base of this mountain. What a public showing up of God. Yahweh descending on the mountain in fire. So all this pretense, God shows up. And what does he say to Moses? Moses is up there for the third time. And the Lord says to Moses, go back down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Let also the priests who come near me to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you you yourself warned us, saying, set the limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said, go back down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went back down to the people and told them. Three, three times. So interesting what God says to Moses. All this lash, this incredible, powerful God showing up on earth. And what does God say? Ah, my presence might kill some people. That's counterintuitive. That's really counterintuitive, isn't it? God fears for the well-being of his people. So he sends Moses back down again. You can understand Moses' response. He's like, hey, we set the limits. We're good, man. I've already hiked this like three times. I don't want to go back down and do it again. But God's like, no, go down. Whether there's people trying to get closer and get a look or the, the, the limits weren't set far enough back, God's very concerned. He says, I might kill some people. What does this tell us? It's really instructive. When God shows up, the well-being of his people is on his mind far more than whatever his agenda might be. No one's a pawn to God. No one. Look at him show up here. He fears that he may hurt them. So he pulls the plug and he says, you got to go back down. We'll try this again, Moses. I know that I kind of said, I, I told people not to come up. They're doing it anyways. We, I, we said set the limits, but they're crossing them. The consequences, they should be stoned or, or slung shot, right? But no, he says, let's, let's get back down there and make sure they're okay. He's completely unlike any other God. There's no other God you can find in literature anywhere that is so focused on the well-being of people. This, the, the, the script is flipped everywhere else. It's people sacrificing for the well-being of the God to get their favor, but not 
Not the God of the Israelites. Not this Yahweh. So Moses goes down a third time to straighten everything out. And then finally he hikes up on the fourth time with Aaron to receive this covenant, okay? We're going we're gonna to read these 21 verses here. It's going to take 48 seconds, okay? I timed it. Maybe a little longer. Who knows? It depends how I'm feeling. And God spoke all these words saying, underline it, circle it, saying, there it is again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the, the sin or inequity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And over the course of the next 10 chapters, <clears throat> in Exodus, and over the course of the next 10 months, Moses goes up and down, and he receives more and more of this covenant and the laws that are tied to it. The book of Leviticus Deuteronomy is kind of another exposition of the same law. But this is what I want to ask you at this point. This is the most public display of God um, before Jesus shows up. What does he do? He gives them the law. He gives them a list of rules. God shows up and he instructs. He instructs. And this might be anticlimactic for you. The smoke, the lightning, the thunder, the fire, the, the trumpet. Who doesn't love a good trumpet? And God shows up to tell us what to do? Why all the pretense? Why does God instruct them? And, and what I hope to help you see this morning is that this action is one of the most merciful, kind, loving thing that God does for Israel. That's why they were completely obsessed with it and couldn't get away from this fact that God showed up with them and showed them how to live life. God shows up to instruct them because he's hoping to retune them. When God shows up, he retunes his people. Israel was out of tune, meaning it was accomplishing the purpose for which they were created poorly. Okay, imagine if Jordan's guitar up here was out of tune as he played it for us, like just gravely out of tune. We'd be upset. We'd be like, that sounds terrible. That's how the Israelites were in the world. They were out of tune. People could not worship God alongside them. You could say it like that to, to bring the, the metaphor further. God instructs his people because they've fallen out of tune, and he's hoping to, tur to, 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 to turn their tuning pegs and retune them. And this notion of retuning, of, of tuning, carries with it the notion that there is, in fact, a correct pitch. That's what the law is all about. It's saying there is a correct pitch for the human life to live. This is a great way to understand the law of God. God shows up, instructs through the law, 
to show what the correct pitch for life is. And, what, and what's the byproduct of this revelation of the correct pitch to Israel? That they were out of tune. You can call that self-awareness, perhaps. They show up and, and they, they, they probably think, hey, we, we sound okay. God shows up and says, no, you're, out of, you're, you're gravely out of tune. You're, you're deeply off pitch. Let's just, examine, let's just examine the people's relationship with the first commandment, okay? You shall have no other gods, it said. No other gods before me. When the Israelites were in Egypt just a few months prior, they worshiped gods. The gods of the Egyptians, even. Joshua tells us this in Joshua chapter 24, that, that the Israelites actually were worshiping the Egyptian gods along with the Egyptians. Yikes. It's likely that many of the Israelites would have packed these idols with them in the Exodus. Is this challenging your notions of salvation? I hope so. How crazy is that? And the Israelites, as we read through the rest of their experience up to the time of Christ, it seems they never get away from this notion and tendency make idols, to put them on high hills and high mountains, bow down and worship them, take their things, offer it to the idols, uh, their, their crops, their fruits. They'll sacrifice their own children, we'll witness later. They never get away from this idol worship. They're so inclined to idol worship that we even have this embarrassing account in chapter 32, when Moses is up on the mountain receiving some of the law. It says, when the people saw that Moses was delayed in his coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a special proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It's an embarrassing right then and there. And that's just the first commandment. We could go through each one of these and then each one of the following laws and show how in the past, the present, and the future, Israel is falling short of it. God provides the law for his people here. He instructs them to show them how out of tune they are from playing his beautiful notes in the world. And so he instructs them in order to retune them. The question is, is, Is this universal, right? Is all of humanity out of tune like the Israelites were? This kind of brings up the age-old debate that goes like this. Are are we as humans, uh, though imperfect, essentially kind, sensible, good, good, good good-natured creatures? Or deep down, are we tuned to be bad, idle, selfish, self-serving, vain, vengeful? that the notion of retuning that, that we're brushing up against here assumes the latter of those two. God showed up to show his people how out of tune they are. These were his special people. The assumption is that if these people are out of tune, all people are out of tune. This goes way back to the curse of Genesis 3. I'll let you go back there and read that yourself. We won't get it at, we, we, we won't impact this at depth, I guess, today. We don't have time for this. But Eve was just tempted to, to eat fruit from what tree? What tree is she tempted to eat fruit from? The tree of good and evil. And as you read the narrative, what we find in the narrative is that this tree of good and evil really represents humanity's desire to make decisions about good and evil all on their own. Her and Adam eat of this tree. It's just a, a representation. Maybe there's a physical tree. Maybe not. I don't know. But, which means it really rep- but it represents the fact that they wanted to determine morality by themselves apart from God, and right then and there, they fall out of tune. 
And there's a big debate about whether they were representing all of humanity in that, or maybe all of us were present with Adam and Eve as they did that, or maybe there's some sort of uh, spiritual hereditary trait that goes to all humans that makes all of us fallen and broken in the same way that we want to decide good and evil on our own. But it's present. And by the time that we see Jesus show up in the New Testament and, and, and the New Testament epistles, it's pretty clear the assumption is that all of us are out of tune. Each and every one of us is out of tune. It just takes the smallest amount of self-awareness to look up, look around at the world, witness the disharmony everywhere. We're all so deeply out of tune. But God shows up to instruct us. First thing we discover when he instructs us is that we're very, very out of tune. And the question is, so what? Why does that matter? Now we're going to ask the question, what is the purpose of the law? We could say the first purpose is to show us that we're out of tune, but there's also a deeper purpose for the law. And it's not salvation, and it's not to have a relationship with God. Remember, these are, this is a million people who have already been saved from Egypt. They already have a relationship with God. They already belong to God. <clears throat> Their lack of being in tune did not mean that God would not act mercifully towards them loves them. This is counterintuitive because it's how all other religious systems work. I think we should just say here at this point that this means that no one is too far gone. No no matter what you may have done in life, it doesn't matter. The, 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 The leader of the Israelites right now, Moses, was a murderer. No one's too far gone. Nothing can separate us from the saving action of God, no matter what. We have to remind ourselves so much because it's so alien to how all the world thinks about who this God must be. No one's too far gone. So be encouraged yourself, and then also be encouraged for your friends who may not know Jesus. It doesn't matter in what ways they're out of tune. It doesn't matter how far out of tune they might be. They are not too far gone for God to show up in their lives, save them, radically transform them, show his goodness to them to the point where they will respond, whatever this God says, I think I'd like to get on board with that. No one's too far gone. I've seen God transform the darkest of people. It's amazing. So the question is, why the law then, okay? Well, he actually told us in verse 6, of Exodus 19. Turn back to Exodus 19 if you're not there anymore. It says, Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, so that Israel could function as a kingdom of priests. See, it isn't so that they can be accepted by God. It's so that their testimony about God will be accepted by the world. Here's what's tragic. We often convince ourselves of the opposite. We often convince ourselves that if we were to actually get really, really serious about God, what he's called us to do in our lives, if we're going to get serious about what God asks us to do, that's going to turn a lot of people off to Christianity. Don't we think that? It's very natural. But that's the opposite of how God's mission works. The purpose of the law is actually to retune a people to such a way that there's a beautiful, harmonious noise coming out of them amidst a sea of dissonance, a sea of -of out-of-tunedness. The law is crucial for mission is what we learn here. Not for acceptance, but so that people might accept what the Israelites have to say about this God. Permission. So when God played them as an instrument, they could be a magnificent symphony that all the other people, groups could look at, hear, enjoy, and ask a question. Who is this God that got closest to it during the reign of Solomon? Two nations come over, come from all over the world to just see what these Israelites are up to over here. This small little nation. What are they up to? Nations far more powerful than they. 
So if we're going to be serious about God's love for those who don't know him, we must accept that we're out of tune and lean into the law. Yikes. Now that might be crazy, and your question at this point might be, hold up, what did Jesus have to say about this? Perfect question. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5, okay? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. It starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew. And so it's going to be about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Matthew chapter 5. Here we have another teaching that happened on a mountain. Another teaching that happened on a mountain. Okay? This is Jesus showing up some 1,300 years after Sinai, just to put it into temporal perspective for you. Okay? 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, the same word, underline it, circle it, whatever you did with the other two, saying. Matthew's very intentional with his word choice here. Matthew's actually writing to a Jewish audience. Uh, He uses tons of Jewish scripture, uses tons of references that the Jews would have understood. Um, and he uses them in Greek that are kind of the modern-day colloquialisms for old Hebrew things. We know that he's writing primarily to Jews, and so he's using this word saying very intentionally to pop out the page at, at his Jewish listener. Throw him back to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Here we have Jesus going up a mountain. Here we have Jesus with crowds on the bottom of the mountain. Here we have Jesus saying, Matthew is showing that Jesus audaciously and intentionally paralleled the most public appearance of God from the Hebrew scriptures. It's stark. It's jarring. That leads to the natural question, why the lack of smoke? Smoke, sorry. Smoke. No fire, no smoke, no trumpet. What's going on here? Well, we don't have time for that. Ask it in your cohort. Your cohort leaders can do that. Good luck, cohort leaders. You, you, you guys can answer that question, okay? Very different. There's ways that this is different as well, okay? <clears throat> but with an introduction like verses 1 and 2, we would expect Jesus to ex- instruct according to the Mosaic law. And that's exactly what he does. And so he has this disclaimer in here to just make it really clear about what he's up to with regards to the law. Look at verse 17. He says... This is Matthew 5, verse 17, little number 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I'm not here to relax the law. I'm not here to make it easier to accomplish. We can answer the question, what happens when God shows up? He provides the law and he doesn't relax it. That much is clear. See, but there's a version of Christianity that goes like this. Jesus came so that I could be forgiven of all the ways that I fall short. So I don't really have to worry much about my sin. He took care of it. That envisions a Jesus that relaxes the law. He says he didn't come to do that at all. There seem to be some serious consequences for that conclusion. Now, I don't think it's damnation, actually, so don't worry too much. but, But consequences nonetheless, okay? Consequences. What Jesus actually did over the course of this sermon is intensify the law. Intensify it. Let's look at a couple of examples. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He just brought into all who might fall into this murder category. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
broadens that definition too. 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces with you to go with them one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Way more intense than anything said in the law. 6.25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus, this is intense. I, I told a friend this week that I'd be preaching on this sermon on the mount, and I saw nervousness enter his being, and he said, that's going to be intense. This is the appropriate attitude of someone who understands this sermon. This is intense. Jesus leaves us shell-shocked. If your vision of Jesus is that he's your buddy that's going to put up with your crap, that's not this Jesus. This Jesus says, that's your crap. Cut your hand off. Oy! We're all out of tune in these areas of life. And if it wasn't clear enough, he says this in 548. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How can we attain that? And just like Israel with the Old Testament law, Jesus shows us that we fall short in the past and the present and will in the future with regards to the aspects of the law. All of us will. Jesus shows up, he points out how... How out of tune we are from playing his beautiful notes, his beautiful perfect pitch in the world. He clearly hopes to retune us. So he uses the law in the same way that God showed up and first gave it to the Israelites to show us, hey, y'all are really out of tune. You're in dire need for someone to twist your tuning pegs to bring you back into goodness, resonance, harmony once again. This is why Jesus actually starts his Sermon on the Mount the way he does. There's a bunch of strange sayings at the front of the Sermon on the Mount that are really difficult to understand. The word uh, blessed in Hebrew really just means happy. It says, happy are the poor in spirit. Counterintuitive. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn. Also a conundrum. For they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He says, happier the poor in spirit. He says, happier those who let the law do, their work, do its work and see how little they have in terms of righteousness and in goodness on their own, who they correctly perceive what's going on. Happier those who mourn for that reality, these work on each other. Happier those who in their meekness look to God and say, I need to be retuned. Happier those who hunger and thirst for righteousness as a result. You see, there's, there's an order of just our, our need and our dependence on God to show us what living the tuned life looks like and asking him for it. You truly start to understand Jesus' message when you realize you're worse than you thought and that you're more loved than you thought. Both. You're worse than you thought and you're more loved than you thought. That's when Jesus gets, even, he gets greater and greater and greater. So, so Jesus used the law to call out our attitude nature, and he call, calls people back to the law, his followers back to the law, for the same purpose that was provided in Exodus 19, verse 6. You know, when we're talking about Israel being priests for the world, priests standing between God and people to help them understand who God was, Jesus does the same thing in, in this sermon. 5, verse 13, he says this to his followers, "'You are the salt of the earth.'" But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And just in case we didn't know he was talking about the law, so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
Jesus wants to retune his people so that they can be a beautiful public display of God's glory in the world, of how good this God must be, so that they might be a beautiful melody that people would want to listen to, be a part of. He longs to retune his people to the law, even an intensified version of it, so that people might hear this perfect pitch rising up. Jesus conceives of the laws with the same purpose, okay? Uh, What does this mean? It means that you can be a Christian and you can put the basket over your light. You can decide not to follow the law. What a pity. There's a world that needs light. There's a world that needs to hear the music of the kingdom, the music of the gospel. And when we turn our backs on the law, they can't do it. Have you thought of the law as one of the most crucial instruments for mission? Maybe you haven't, but it is one of the most crucial instruments for mission. We know that because there's large swaths of Christianity in the past that have left the law. They've said, you know what? Obeying God isn't really that important. And and do you know what happens? The churches die. The movements fade. Uh, we're, we're usually not one to cast stones here at this, at this church, but there's 100 churches meeting in this city right now with 10 people aged 70 and up that were in the Protestant main time, uh, the, the mainstream Protestant liberalization of the church that, that took place back in the 20s. It's almost dead. We're going to be talking about that a little more at the gospel class. If you want to come on back up after the service. The law is a crucial instrument. <clears throat> Now, how do we know if we're letting God show up like this in our lives? Well, the Holy Spirit is God, okay? So let's look at why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, okay? This is from John chapter 16, starting halfway through verse 4. Jesus is is speaking on the the night before he's going to go to the cross. He's with his disciples. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? He just told him that he was going to be killed, okay? He wasn't going to be with him anymore. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, what is God the Spirit going to do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because I do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene. One of his main roles in our lives is to convict us of sin, what not to do. Righteousness, what to do. To reveal the law to us. To reveal the law of the Spirit is what Paul will expound on later in his letters. How about that? One of the primary roles of the Spirit is to reveal the law. And so God shows up in our life continually to reveal us the law, to show us how we're out of tune with it, that he might retune us to it, that his mission might go forward in the world. This is the purpose of the law. This is why it's so, so important. So important. We see it happening in whole triune God, working together to do the same thing. So how do we know when God shows up in our lives? I hope it it normalizes it a little bit for you and shows that God has shown up in your life a lot. If you've experienced conviction of sin, God's shown up in your life. Wow, praise God. God has shown up through his spirit in your life. I've just had the opportunity to sit shotgun with a handful of folks over the last few years as they've come to, to faith in Jesus And this is the one of the things I'm always looking for in their journey, because a journey of consideration towards Jesus for people who hadn't considered Jesus ever before takes some time. You know, we've got to build out definitions of God, who this God is, build out definitions of sin, what that is. One of the things I'm always looking for is, how are they conceiving of sin? In particular, their sin. When you start to see the when you see the switch has been flipped in in their minds and in their hearts of an understanding of their sin and a regret for it, God showed up at that point. It's really cool to witness. Sometimes I don't even know it, and so I get to point at it and be like, God showed up to you and showed this to you. How amazing is that? The Holy Spirit 
has opened your eyes to sin. It's really fun to watch. When we grasp that we're out of tune to such a degree that we, there's nothing we can do that will fix it, we've encountered God. What's more, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is the agent that is also participating with us in the retuning. You could say that he actually takes a lot of responsibility in it. The Holy Spirit is that which empowers us to righteousness. We'll learn elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay? So, so, so when, you, when you see you're completely powerless to sin, God's shown up and revealed that to you. And when you start taking new steps in the area of sin, that's God powerfully showing up in your life, even in that way, to work righteousness in your lives. And so what does all this mean? It means that as we walk through life more and more, the Holy Spirit reveals our hearts as more and more out of tune, honestly. So we actually have this experience that, that we feel more sinful, although we're not more sinful, we're just more aware of our sin. And then he also progresses us and he grows us in areas as well. Does it seem like there's a, a longer and longer list of things to, do, to, to tune? Absolutely. But praise God that he actually is tuning us and that people are seeing it and they are hearing it and they are come to know him in the world. <clears throat> the Spirit remains with us. And, and so really what I, I want to encourage you with this week is look for God to show up in your life. Look for God to reveal the law to you. Maybe you'd say, you know what? God hasn't revealed this to me yet and that's okay, that's okay. Maybe you'd say, I don't actually see myself as that out of tune. That, that's okay because Jesus, I think he expected the same thought that people might have when he was giving his sermon on the mount. He said this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. See that? If you say that your eyes aren't opened to the, the, the reality of, of your out-of-tunedness, or how the law is actually a really crucial element to hold on to if we want to be missionaries in the city, just start asking God to open your eyes to that. Start reading the law. I mean, it, it just takes about 15 minutes to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's intense but it's the law, it'll begin to reveal to you how out of tune your heart is. And, and through this, we can begin to take steps towards, towards a high view of what God has called his people to do, and his mission will go forward into the world even more than it is now. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you that you have revealed your law to your people. You have revealed your law to the world and that it isn't necessarily something that, that we have to do in order to gain your love because there's no way that we can do it. So we praise you for your grace. Right now, I just pray for those of you who, of my friends who are here right now that, that would say they don't know you, God. I just pray that, that you would show them your love, your grace, your mercy, the fact that all of us are in the same boat. All of us have fallen short in the law in the past. All of us are falling short in it in the present. All of us will continue to fall short of it in the future. Lord, I pray that you would help us in faith, ask you to retune us. That you would show us that goodness and that the city would come to know you as a result. Pray this in the name of Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Every week at Sedaris, we, we observe the Lord's Supper with one another. This is the place that actually took care of all of the ways that we have fallen short of the law, past, present, and future. This represents Jesus dying on the cross where all sin on him was laid and he experienced the wrath of God and the separation from God that comes as a result of sin. Um, and so the, the way that you participate in this is you come up at any point in the next three songs, you break off a piece of the bread, Christ's body broken for you, you dip it in the cup, which represents Christ's blood poured out for you. You eat it as a way of celebrating the fact that, that you have been united to him, uh, remembering the fact that Jesus came and poured out everything so that we could have life with God and experience the power, the retuning power of the Holy Spirit now. Um, and then you'll, you'll uh, go back to your seat and continue in worship.
Uh, we, we say that this table is really for anybody who's professing faith in Jesus in the ways that we've been talking about that. We don't say that to be exclusive to anybody. We just say that because we want this to be an experience of joy and of faith, of love, of gratefulness to God, okay? And so if that's you, you're, you're totally welcome to come up here. And if that's you for the first time today, you're totally welcome to come up here as well, okay? So I deliver to you what I also receive from the Lord, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant and my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So whenever you're ready, come celebrate. Remember what Jesus did on the cross.